we've been recording Channel Your Enthusiasm for quite a bit, and we'd like to get to know our listeners a bit. And so we've put together a survey. As part of this survey, we're asking for people's email addresses because we're going to try to create a newsletter. It's going to be a low-frequency newsletter once a month or less, but just a way for us to communicate with our listeners. So just go to rosebook.club. That's our website, rosebook.club, and follow the links to filling out the survey. Thanks. Roger? Uh, Roger Rodby. I'm at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Roger, you're... Your chair squeaked when you sat up. Can you give me another introduction? Just a clean introduction. <laughs> but not no, I'm like, serious. Not like Rosanna Rosanna did. Yeah, it was really embarrassing. <laughs> we were all. <laughs> it's really squeaky. It's... Oh my god! <laughs> it's gonna squeak all night. I'm gonna sit on it. I'm gonna send you a can of WD-40 with a little bow on it. It's like the most. It's a very Indiana solution. Like I'm very practical. Let me get this fixed for you. Anna is the one you, the friend you always wish you had. She's got like everything, and she's gonna solve all your problems. Got it in my purse. <laughs> See, we should introduce each other for the intro. That would be much more fun. Oh yeah. Next time. <laughs> she's not tired, so she's gonna hang out with us. Physiology, a complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our two-year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis, this is Channel Your Enthusiasm. The Burton Rose Cocktail Club and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff and I'm your host. Tonight we are discussing Chapter 4, The Loop of Henley and Countercurrent Exchange. What I think of as the conceptually most difficult part of kidney physiology. So join us as we struggle to articulate this as best we can. Tonight's crew includes Melanie... I'm from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. Leticia. Hey, this is Leticia Malone, or as this crew lovingly calls me, Lippy, and what I like it. I am from UCSF. Roger. Roger Rodby. I'm at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Amy. Uh, I'm Amy Yao. I'm at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Josh. Hi, I'm Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrology fellow at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Anna. I'm Anna Gaddy, or as Melanie lovingly calls me, the friend you wish you had. And I'm at Indiana University uh, School of Medicine, and I'm a fellow there. And Juan Carlos. Juan Carlos J.C. Vélez from Oxnard Health System in New Orleans. Okay, chapter four, Loop of Henley and the Countercurrent Mechanism. This is a complex part of the physiology. Roger, you were saying that you thought this wasn't a great chapter. What, what was your kind of opening statement there? Well, my opening statement is that uh, maybe I'm just not smart enough to handle it. 
<laughs> it's really tough. There's so much going on there. And it's, you know, it reminds me of what I don't like about so many physiology books. There's so much detail. And what I really liked about this book is that in a way it tends to skip some of the really specific details. And so you get the big picture and here there was so much and maybe it's required, but uh, there's so much detail that it's hard for me to follow the big picture here. I had a hard time. I thought when he actually drilled down into the kind of the mechanism, I thought he did a really good job. I was able to easily sort important versus not important in terms of being able to go through the detail. I like this chapter. I think for the countercurrent exchange part, this is probably the best written description with pictures that I've seen of how countercurrent exchange works. And these are the pictures I think I've gone to intuitively without ever knowing that they were from this book. So that idea, and we'll get to it later, of the two columns of different solutes, and they kind of move throughout the tubule. One of them ticks underneath the the U-shaped bend and into the next column, and the salt moves to the left is always the way I've conceived of countercurrent exchange. And to me, this just kind of made sense. But I agree, there's a lot of detail leading up to the part where you get to that really pretty part. And then true, false. Do you think you can uh, kind of understand renal physiology is just accepting that this is a black box, that this generates this concentrated medullary interstitium and not knowing the details and how it's created? What do you think about that? Do you think it's essential that we know the mechanism for how this whole thing works? I think it's essential to me having a job that I keep finding out little pieces of the black box. I do think it's important that you don't oversimplify this part when you're trying to explain it to trainees that you don't make it oversimplified and and ignore the fact that there's so much we don't understand. As long as you preface it with, we're not exactly sure what happens, but here's what comes out the other side, and this is what the overall effect is, I think that's okay. But I think it's really doing a disservice to kind of conceptualize it because then when people start to really think through it the way you explained it, they go, "Mm, that doesn't really make sense to me. Because that's what happened like the first 25 times people explained this to me. And I went, but that doesn't really make sense because of this, this, and this. Letty, how do you teach this to your second years or first years or whatever years they're taking it? We teach it to the first years. Basically, we do very big pictures. Like this is what's going on. We go a little bit into some of the mechanisms and especially like the the primary channels. And then we say a lot of there's a lot of other detail that you don't have to know. And then we reassure them. And then it's they still feel worried that they'll still have to know it for step one. There's still a lot of questions, but we we just focus on the main things and tell them uh, the most important pieces that they have to know for pharmacotherapy and for treatment of diseases. But I agree with Anna that it's important not to oversimplify just the importance of this. And especially around the time when we're talking about hyponatremia and how some of it can develop with some diuretics versus not others. The picture is still a little pixelated, but you could tell the shapes. There's so much clinically relevant to this, the, the concentration system, and there's it comes up in so many different scenarios clinically that just understanding the gradient, what changes it, what impacts it, how the kidney uses it is really plenty. Understanding how it's created is icing on the cake to me, quite frankly. I think that's exactly right, that all the dysnatremias find their origin in this physiology, right? Whether you're talking about hypernatremia or hyponatremia, you're going right here. And then you can layer on top of that, our primary diuretic therapy is also focused right here. And you can start to understand the complications, whether that's hypercalciuria, the the, the calcium dysregulation, the magnesium dysregulation that you get with these loop diuretics. Melanie, I see you're bobbing your head a lot here. Do you have any opening statements or thoughts? Yes, two things. One, I don't think you can teach this section without waving your hands. So it's a little unfortunate (laughs) that this is an audio. And second, I'm dying to share a quote with you from Homer Smith. 
Is that okay? Yeah, please. Okay. Homer Smith gets gets top billing here. I mean, after Bud Rose, and then you know, absolutely. Here's the quote, okay? And because I think you'll find that you're in really good company if you feel uncomfortable with the loop of Henley. He says, "I still do not like it. It seems extravagant and physiologically complicated." Though so is the whole glomerular filtration tubular reabsorption pattern. Least of all, however, do I like the squamous epithelium of the thin segment freely permeable to water, if not to sodium also, in the descending limb, only to acquire water impermeability and active sodium transport at the tip of the loop for no better reason, apparently, than circumstances that it has to turn a corner. But I suppose that I can get used to that too. Okay, that's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. If I'm not mistaken, when he wrote a lot of his books, I don't think the countercurrent mechanism was understood. I think he knew a lot of what each segment did and what it was permeable or not permeable. But I, I'm fairly certain that was figured out after his day. Or, or he just didn't like it. So it took him a long time to embrace. So. Well, I don't like it either. So he and I have that in common. Yeah, so we're in good company. And maybe that'll be our next book uh, club will be uh, From Fish to Philosopher. <laughs> One of the funniest Twitter accounts on Med Twitter is screaming pectoriloquy at columovirus. And he tweeted, or she tweeted, anyone have any good books on the kidney? Not like textbooks or board review stuff, but an actual book with normal paragraphs written by one person. And he only got one reply, which was from me, and I suggested, From Fish to Philosopher by Homer Smith. And then later on, he sent me a message that says, Lest you ever underestimate the power of educational outreach on social media, I can say with pretty good confidence that this seemingly off-the-cuff recommendation has ultimately played a significant role in my decision to pursue nephrology. And so, Homer Smith, still inspiring doctors 80 years later. Homer Smith's From Fish to Philosopher is the reason I'm pursuing nephrology. It's as simple as that. What started as an off-the-cuff book recommendation on Twitter led to me matching into my top nephrology fellowship in just eight months. I can't think of any other book that's had as profound an influence on my life or career. I know at least two people who read it after I recommended it, and if they each convinced two other people to read it, and so on and so forth, then in just 33 iterations we can inspire the whole world to become nephrologists. I'm pretty sure my math is sound. I think the first 10 pages is some of the most better. beautiful prose I've ever read. I, I often read it to our fellows and I get all choked up at a certain part. I really, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's just so eloquent. Your mascara. Ro- Roger seems like such a tough guy, but he chokes up with that little Homer Smith. It's, it's <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not tough at all. The thing that always really got me when I was first learning about this, there's some YouTube videos that are great. And I go frequently is just watch like 10 different people explain it. And I find that sort of meshing those over each other in my mind, I can usually find some sort of inner peace. Well, we've got, we've got eight people here. Let's see if we can get through it. Yeah, let's see if we can do it. So he opens up the chapter. He goes through the anatomy. Remember that 60% of the filtrate has been reabsorbed in the proximal tubule. So we're down to the last 40 to 45%. He divides the loop into four segments, the descending limb, the thin ascending limb, and then a medullary thick and a cortical thick ascending limb. And the end of the loop of Henle is at the macula densa of its parent 
glomeruli. And we have talked about TG feedback in the very first GFR segment. And so we're kind of back to that beginning where we're now we're anatomically there. But we talked about here the sodium potassium 2 chloride transporter in the macula densa. If it's triggered by increased chloride reabsorption, causes afferent arteriolar constriction and mesangial constriction. And that the loop of Henley reabsorbs about 25 to 35% of the filtered sodium chloride. And importantly, this is the first time we start to reabsorb a solute and water separately, right? All through the proximal tubule, we had very loose, tight junctions. They should be called loose junctions or loose, tight junctions. It's weird. It's like a jumbo shrimp right there, right? It's an oxymoron, the loose, tight junction. And so anytime we reabsorb solute, we raise the osmolality in the tubular fluid and water osmotically would move into the paratubular capillaries. And uh, now... Our tight junctions get tighter. After the apex of the loop of Henle, we start to reabsorb solute without water. And this is the first of a number of diluting segments in the kidney, which is essential for creating dilute urine. Except I really love to call this segment, even though the fluid in the lumen becomes more dilute, I like to call this section the concentrating segment because it's making the medulla concentrated and then allows you to make concentrated urine later. So I, even though it's true, the the fluid in the lumen is becoming more dilute, this segment's job is to make concentrated urine. So, or help you get there. So I call it the concentrating segment. It's making the fuel for future dilute urine. And then on the descending limb, it is permeable to sodium and chloride, and it is permeable to water. So very similar to what we've been doing in the proximal tubule, but now it's just thin and we don't have any active transport at all. It's all passive on the descending limb. And then we turn the corner at the apex. And as long as we're in the thin limb, we're still totally passive, but now no more reabsorption of water. We're impermeable to water until we get to the, until we leave the kidney, except for under the influence of ADH. The other point is that the water permeability in the descending limb is not through the tight junctions. It's actually through aquaporin-1. Aquaporin-1 is the same one that's in red blood cells, but it's specifically located here. And it's not under the influence of ADH. It's constitutively active. It's always going to be water permeable. We're good there? Okay. And then he goes into the cell model for sodium chloride transport. And just like we had in the proximal tubule, the active transport is driven by the sodium potassium ATPase. And I think he said that this is the area with the most active sodium potassium ATPase in the kidney right here. We're going to be cranking out a lot of it. Um, and that maintaining a low concentration of sodium that's going to drive your sodium potassium 2 chloride transporter. Right. It says that this molecule will go until the sodium concentration in the tubular fluid is down to 5 to 10 millicoulombs per liter. It was saying that the activity of the sodium potassium 2 chloride transporter is already maxed out if the tubular fluid is at 5 or 10 or higher of sodium equivalents mm-hmm. per liter at that point. And since it's always higher than that in that tubular fluid, that sodium potassium two chloride transporter is always at its maximal Thank activity. You. It's not that the tubular it's not that the tubular fluid gets down to five or ten. No, it's right. that in experimental conditions you can still keep it active all the way down. Right. That affinity, that like maximal activity turnover, you're already at hundred percent for the sodium potassium two chloride transporter. At any sodium, so that the chloride effectively drives the and it, right, and that it's and that it is chloride. 
chloride that is going to be driving the activity. That's exactly that's exactly right. right. So the point is is that doesn't that the sodium concentration in the tubular fluid down to an extremely low level will be plenty to drive this forward. But the chloride, as that chloride concentration goes down, the activity of this transporter will also go down. And I think this is one of the things that was interesting to me about watching the biology kind of emerge over the past 10, 15, 20 years since the books come out, that about a year ago, we had our first structural look at what a sodium potassium chloride transporter looks like. It's NKCC1, not NKCC2. But you can see that it is bonding sites for a sodium, a potassium, and a chloride all in the same area, and you need one of each to be able to move the ions through. And the thought is that for NKCCT, you need two chloride spots to be able to move everything through as well. So it really lines up perfectly with the physiology that we understood. To see the structure, to see the binding sites for those molecules, I think is a really cool confirmation of, of this mechanism that we understood beforehand. You know, this this chapter is definitely complex, and I, I just wanted to say that for trainees or young uh, faculty who read this chapter for the first time, I didn't get it. You know, you have to read it again for the second time and you get it a little bit, but you still don't get it. So don't feel discouraged for those of you who read this chapter and, and struggle with it. But at the same time, this chapter has the medullary thickest sending loop of endless cell, which we're discussing right now. And I cannot think of any other cell that I have drawn more in a blackboard or in a piece of paper to explain anything that is clinically relevant, whether you talk about loop diuretics, whether you talk about hypercalcemia, hyponatremia, it is absolutely fascinating. And when you were talking about this co-transporter, the other thing that is fascinating about this idea of the recycling of potassium, you know, when I started learning about this in medical school, I thought that this is dumb. Why is the potassium coming in and coming out, right? What is the purpose of that? And and it has to do with the luminal concentration of potassium and sodium that gets to that site. Well, JC, why don't you walk us through that? What we're talking about here is the principal active molecule for reabsorption in the whole loop of Henle. It all happens with the sodium-potassium-2 chloride. And then what, what happens next? So we were discussing that there is a concentration gradient that favors the entry of sodium into the cell. The co-transporter requires two chlorides, so it requires two positive ions to come along with the chloride, and the other one is potassium. But as we know, the, the filter concentration of potassium is like plasma, four milliequivalents per liter. So uh, there are going to be a lot of water reabsorption and potassium reabsorption going along the proximal convoluted tubule, but ultimately there's a significant difference in the concentration of luminal sodium and luminal potassium at the side of the loop of Henle. So how does this cotronporter handle that? How does the cell handle that? Well, the sodium that comes in is going to be eventually moved through the cell and through the basolateral membrane into the peritubular capillary. The chloride that come in are going to go through the chloride channels at the basolateral side and also go into the peritubular capillary. But you're going to run out of potassium because you have less potassium. So potassium comes in. And we have this amazing recycling potassium channel that spits out the potassium that got in and gets it out. And not only reactivates the sodium potassium to chloride co-transporter, but it also, by doing so, creates a negative voltage in the same membrane that we can talk about it later. Sodium potassium 2 chloride is electroneutral in itself. But since the potassium after coming in goes right back out, you essentially generate a positive charge inside the tubule 
and a negative charge inside the cell, a potential difference across the, across this membrane. Correct. And that positive charge then drives the paracellular reabsorption of more sodium, calcium, and magnesium. And, exactly. uh, and that's very cool. And then the other thing that is super cool is that potassium channel is regulated by ATP. Oh, yeah. And so if you have plenty of ATP, it shuts that channel down. And so the idea there is that when you are really reabsorbing a lot of sodium, that's going to ramp up your sodium potassium ATPase in the basolateral membrane. That's going to consume ATP. And remember, every time that sodium potassium ATPase is running, you're moving more and more potassium into the cell. Consuming that ATP is going to open up the potassium channel and allow that potassium to run back out into the tubular fluid. And so the it's a kind of a self-regulating system that the more you're running it, the more it's going to open up that potassium channel. No, so you don't run out of potassium. It's really very cool system. It's funny because I was reading this and it literally is like, oh, chloride is the rate limiting thing. I'm like, oh, so okay, I believe you. And then I turn the page and it's like, well, you might be thinking. I'm like, I was not thinking that, but thank you for. <laughs> I I do know yeah, how. Thank you for you know, assuming. I'm so yes, smart. right. <laughs> I was going to say the other thing that I thought was very cool and I had just had not thought of before. He makes the point that you have the sodium ATPase on the basolateral membrane and you're reabsorbing one sodium, but because of the uniqueness of the sodium potassium two chloride co-transporter, you in essence get two sodiums for the work of moving one, which I thought was really cool because you have to have the two chlorides. So then as you described, we're going to end up with a sodium paracellularly. So in essence, we're getting two sodiums for the cost of one, which I thought was cool. Yeah, very cool. And we're just using potassium to get there. I think I really didn't appreciate the role of the potassium recycling here before I read this chapter. You know, like two weeks ago, I did not understand how potassium recycling work. And the idea that you have this potassium that comes through the sodium potassium two chloride transporter, it gets shipped back across this potassium channel in exchange for a paracellular sodium like Melanie is talking about. It really lets you get two sodiums to the vasorecta, but only having to put one of them through the sodium potassium ATPase. And the other aspect that is also very cool about the, this potassium it's channel super and cool. the recycling, you mentioned the ATP regulation, Joel, and the other one obviously is a calcium sensing receptor at the basolateral site. All scientists should name sensors like the calcium sensing receptor, right? <laughs> I ask interns that don't know anything about the kidney, what do you think yeah, the calcium sensing receptor is? a great point, does? right? They all uh, get it right. I love it. Paracelling one or claudine 17. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it senses calcium. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Calcium sensing receptor says, yeah, so it does what it says on the tin. <laughs> right, so the, so the basal lateral side detects calcium and it signals across if there's high calcium levels, it'll shut down this potassium, this ROMK, the, the channel that allows potassium to move out of the cell. And that kind of secondarily acts like ferrosamide. It'll shut down the sodium potassium chloride because we said that that potassium recycling is essential. Ca triggering the calcium sensing receptor shuts down that recycling. And why that's important is then you no longer get that positive charge in the tubule, which is what drives the calcium reabsorption. So this high calcium shuts down calcium reabsorption just like you would want it to be. And then it also explains, right, what's one of the most prominent symptoms of hypercalcemia is they all come in volume depleted and they all come in with polyuria, 
right? And what, what's going on there? What Correct. you're seeing is it's there this is a biochemical some, uh, Lasix reports of uh, hypercalcemia in cell culture, a high concentration of, of uh, calcium in the cell media, altering the uh, trafficking of aquaporin channels, causing a direct nephrogenic insipidus. So it's always difficult to dissect. They go together. They're so related because once you mess up with the sodium potassium to chloride transporter, you're going to be washing out a metal and affecting your ability to reabsorb uh, water, regardless of, uh, <laughs> of aquaporin channels are not being present. But then there's also this information. So maybe all those factors are valid and explains why these patients could be so polyuric and, and so depleted. Anything else in this area that people were excited about? Washing out the grading is going to stop you from going above, say, you know, 300 or something, but it's not going to get you down to 150, polyuria of 150. And, and I think I've seen that with hypercalcemia, which really gets to the more of the aquaporin mechanism than the washing out of the gradient mechanism. I hadn't really thought about the form. I've, I've always thought of it as a nephrogenic DI. And I've seen fairly dilute urine and hypernatremia, the real deal, you know, with uh, hypercalcemia. Uh, same thing as occasionally hyper, hypercalcemia. Yeah, it's interesting because you read some authors that completely attribute the polyuria to the nephrogenic DI. And in some other places, you will read just the Lasix-like effect. The hypercalcemia is like a loop diuretic. And there's no much mention of the nephrogenic DI. They're probably both valid, like you said. You know, dude. I think that I think they're both valid, That's mainly true. because if it was just nephrogenic DI, they wouldn't be so volume depleted. These people are hypotensive; they're orthostatic. They point, really yeah. do have pretty profound volume mm-hmm. deficiency. It's sodium yeah. deficiency, right? And that that sounds more like a, a Lasix type effect. So I, I, I'm sure that both both of these are active. It's never that simple, right? So this is a perfect example. Here we are. We're in the loop of Henley. And directly from here, walk through the physiology of hypercalcemia, right? It just it feels like it should be a million miles away, but it's, it's right there in front of us. And then the other thing that I think it's, it's worth talking about is I've never seen a patient with Barter syndrome. Barter's disease, Barter syndrome. Which one is it? Barter's disease? Syndrome. It's a syndrome. I've never seen one of these patients, but- there's so many types and they really hit every one of these elements, right? There's a, I think it's, and I'm going to get the types wrong, That's but there's one, one that knocks out the sodium potassium two chloride channel, right? That's a classic way that type one, that's a classic way to do it. There's yeah. another one that takes out the chloride transporter on the basolateral membrane, right? All that chloride, those so, two chlorides coming three, in, yeah, they have to exit four. the cell. Uh, yeah. That's on the basolateral membrane. And then there's another one that affects the calcium sensing receptor, where it's it's a it's a gain of function mutation of the calcium sensing receptor, which is type five. Have we hit them all? Is that is that all of them? And type two, and which what, what is type two? There's the ROMK, and that's a potassium channel, right? So you really can walk through. We've, we kind of we've diagrammed all these parts out, and believe it or not, there's a molecular disorder for each one of these components. Well, it doesn't really matter where you throw the wrench, right? As long as it sticks somewhere and the whole thing's going to grind to a stop at the end. So, <laughs> No, that's exactly right. And, and the fact that there's a mistake in every one of them and that the molecular mechanism has been mapped out is... These are knockout people before we had knockout mice, right? This is how you used to find mechanisms for you to genetic engineering is, is you found all the sick people you could who were really young and you figured out what genetic disorder they had. And it and ran, ran in their, their family. family and, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that, that's how we got all these mechanisms is how nephrology was you know, had these mechanisms before the development. It's pretty miraculous that it worked because how many of us have seen one single barters of any of those types? 
So just to review, there are five types of barter syndrome. Type 1 is a defect in the NKCC. Type 2 is a defect in ROMK. Type 3 is a defect in the chloride channel. Type 4 is a defect in Barton, which is a subunit of the chloride channel. And type 5 is a gain-of-function mutation of the calcium-sensing receptor, also sometimes called autosomal dominant hypercalcemic hypercalciuria. Types 1 and type 4 are autosomal recessive, and type 4 is the only one that is not associated with nephrocalcinosis. Well, I was going to ask, so who has seen a Barter syndrome patient? I, I, I've had a few just, Gittleman's. Just one. Any interesting stories there, Melanie? Well, only just that the losses were so profound, and usually either the hospitalization is long or repeated because it's almost impossible to replete their losses and really disturbing for patient and caregivers because there's no great formula to help them restore. Primarily, the big thing is potassium losses. We had one uh, developed end-stage renal disease, probably from chronic hypokalemic nephropathy. It's pretty unusual. I've had several Gittleman's, but we've only had one barters that I can think of. And so this is a dumb question, but once... Once they were ESRD, was that the end of it? No, actually, for a while, he kept making urine because it's right, yeah. you know, kind of the classic tubule interstitial disease, ESRD versus glomerular disease, right. ESRD. So he wasn't really making much urine. I think they tried giving him non-stroils yeah. and shut him down further and, and make him anuric. I have a, the same experience. One patient that was labeled as ESRD secondary to barter. And, you know, my first reaction was like, what? You know, this is uh, not a cause of ESRD. But... You go back to PubMed, you'll find a few reports, and, and Roy, you had a case. So maybe these patients have just multiple chronic episodes of volume depletion of hypokalemia, activation of the renal angiotensin system, who knows, and they just progress into scarring. And, and it's, it's supposed to cause cystic disease, right? The, the hypokalemia Yeah, cystic uh, tubulopathy, correct, yeah. And they get this hypertrophic juxtaglomerular apparatus, and it's fascinating. You can see that same CKD in chronic anorexics that are chronic hypokalemia. Yeah. I've got a couple yes. of patients or creatins or two and it's and just from chronic severe hypokalemia. It's a great example. I have seen uh, several of those patients with anorexia bulimia that they come to the hospital three to four times a year and you see the trajectory, the creatinine just every time they leave the hospital, the baseline is now a little bit higher, a little bit higher. So it's sort of an acquired barter like uh, so progressive CKD. Yeah, and I don't. I don't think it's hypotension. I don't think it's little ATNs all the time. But I think it's chronic hypokalemic tubulopathy leading to fibrosis. But one thing that is true that we definitely see many more barter cases in in test questions or board exams than in, than in adult medicine, right? In pediatrics, perhaps they do. But we need to learn this because we know we're going to get a question. I would argue is that understanding all these barters has allowed me to understand a clinical. Uh, setting much better. I understand how the calcium sensor receptor works and why is that clinically relevant. So this is an example that understanding physiology has direct clinical relevance. Even though those genetic disorders we won't see necessarily, it allows you to understand how that part of the nephron works. Letty, do you guys take time to go over Barter syndrome in your M1s? It's like a brief mention under the differential for hypo-K, hypo-MAC, but we do not go into any of this in detail. It's a shame. We have a total of like 
eight classroom days to teach all of nephrology. That should be enough, right? Well, why? So, you, I mean, you probably get yeah. that in the sense, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know if you, how it is for you guys, Melanie, but th- this is the part that is hard to be. And even just fighting for an extra day, uh, because most of it, it's a lot of flipped classroom, a lot of like outside learning, a lot of video lessons, things like that. But we don't go into this in detail. Nope. Okay, before we move away from the mechanics of how the tubule works, there's one last little section. I don't think this is clinically relevant, but we've talked about it a few more times and I want to close it up. It's that the difference between the long loops and the short loops. So if remember, the surface cortical gloms have the short loops and he makes the point that they essentially have no thin ascending limb, that the apex of the tubule is right at the cortical medullary junction and they go right to a thick ascending limb with no thin ascending limb. And Rose points out that they really don't contribute to the concentration of urine or the dilution of tubular fluid at all. But they, but strangely enough, they are super important for magnesium handling, which was like, okay, I guess magnesium is important with these short loops. And that the critical ones are the 40% or so of nephrons that are at the cortical medullary junction and have the real long loops of Henley that go right to the uh, papillary tip. I, I think the thing that stood out to me was that the urine that goes through the short loops of Henley nephrons still has the opportunity to become more concentrated when it gets to a collecting duct later on. It is not by faith destined to be dilute urine. It can become concentrated too. It just It's because all that ADH activity happens in the collecting duct, which is like the stream into which all the little streams empty into, that the fact that it came from a short loop or a long loop doesn't really matter as much. The long loop, like Melanie had said, sets up that gradient, but the urine itself can all be subject to that gradient later on. The whole first NKCC2 thing is like, oh, you've got to have a sodium, you've got to have a potassium, you've got to have two chlorides. If you don't have those, it will not work. Also, you could have an ammonium. (laughs) Am I... No, I'm really glad you brought that up. I think that one of the things, as I was joking, like you can't teach this without waving your hands. And you said, can we teach this? We don't teach the details of all the different disorders that can cause barters. I'm just hoping to get people to feel safe with the kidney, that they could understand the framework. And then if they love it, they can learn more. And so by the same token, we leave out the thin ascending limb, forgive me. And I don't differentiate between the two different parts of the collecting duct either. Also, I think that knowing that you're setting up this big gradient there, it's not just that you're setting up the gradient for sodium and chloride, but you're also allowing there to be a lot of ammonia there. I say that these things are sort of there for you. So you have ammonia there for you so that later you can put a lot of ammonium into the final filtrate. And actually, frankly, there's a lot of potassium available too, so that you can secrete potassium. So I'll wave my hands and I'll say, these things are sort of there for you for later. I'll wave a little more on top of Melanie's waving. And Anna, thanks for drawing attention to this because it's something I kind of like breezed by on my way to Countercurrent, which is what I really was excited <laughs> about for this chapter. I was trying um, to like not get this, there. <laughs> so there's this this article on the role of ammonia and ammonium transporters in renal acid-base transport. And they have this nice table that I think we can probably link to in the notes 
that shows how similar the ammonium ion and the potassium ion really are, which is not something I'd ever really thought about before. Um, but in terms of size, they're really, uh, the ammonium ion is 0.133 angstroms and the potassium ion is 0.143 angstroms. They have the same Stokes radius, whatever that means, and they have the same charge. And so they actually reasonably could substitute for each other through this channel, one for the other. So apparently ammonium is just like potassium. I'm not a chemist, but in the proximal tubule, we said ammonium was sneaking out as if it was sodium. And now it's sneaking out as if it's potassium. Is ammonium just very promiscuous or is it different? Like, what's up with that? My favorite part of that paragraph you said was, we're going to review this more on page 341. I was like, okay, good. Don't need to know about that now. So the sentence is, the physiologic significance of ammonia recycling is reviewed on page 341, which is my favorite. Yes, and presumably more than just one page. Starts on page 341, yes. Right. And the other acid-base issue was the loop of Henle gets to mop up the remainder of the bicarb that doesn't get reabsorbed in the proximal tubule that since the last 10% gets swept up in the loop of Henle. But I'm not going to let us delay any further. We must move on to the countercurrent exchange. So remember, the osmolality in the body is the same everywhere. It doesn't matter whether you're in the brain or the toe or the gallbladder. Everything's got an osmolality of 285, except for the kidneys. And in fact, it's not even close. The papillary tips have an osmolality of 1,200 Uh, 1,400, according to this chapter, in healthy individuals. Like This is the one place in the body where that rule is broken, and it's broken big. Not just a modest exceeding the speed limit. We're blowing past it. We're doing 80 in a school zone here with an an osmolality of 1,400 at the tip of the medullary interstitium. And the countercurrent exchange is the molecular mechanism that allows that to happen. And so if you want to look at it as a black box, this is the machine that allows you to get a super concentrated medullary interstitium, and it's the thing that allows the tubular fluid to get down to an osmolality. Leaving the loop of Henle, we think the osmolality is like 50 or 100. What is it? I think it's 100. But that's what we're going to be accomplishing with the countercurrent exchange. I would like to not necessarily start by dissecting every single step of this countercurrent mechanism, but... Just how do you conceptualize? And I think about three major components that are mentioned in this chapter that are important. The first component is the creation of the hypertonic interstitium by the sodium-potassium two-chloride co-transporter. Every word what I've read this starts there. You have to start because of the ability of the solute with impermeable water. There's no water getting into the interstitium. That is very unique. That is the driving force. It all starts there. The second component that is extremely unique is this architecture of two capillary vessels descending and ascending in really a close opposition that generate this recycling of molecules that is, is absolutely unique, that allows you to maintain the tonicity without losing it, whether which would happen in a situation where a blood vessel would just go across and not look back. And the third component is the urea recycling, because although it starts with the sodium-potassium-2 chloride co-transporter creating the hypertonic interstitium, you still need urea recycling to get to that huge number at the tip of the papilla 
and generate all those driving forces for water reabsorption. To me, those are three key components. Okay, and we're going to hit all three of those. So the first step is exactly what you identify. You have your, your sodium potassium 2 chloride. This is the only active transport in this whole process, which is really amazing, right? I think we were a little bit unclear about what's going on with the sodium potassium 2 chloride transporter. This is not an ATPase. It is not an active transporter. It is powered by sodium flowing down its concentration gradient, just like we saw in the proximal tubule with the sodium glucose co-transporter, with the sodium phosphorus co-transporter. In all those situations, sodium moving down its concentration gradient allowed movement of another compound. In this case, it is one potassium and two chloride. And so this is an example of secondary active transport, where the molecule in question itself is passive, but is being powered indirectly by the sodium-potassium ATPase, which is keeping that low sodium concentration inside the cell. In the thick ascending limb, we're going to be pumping out sodium chloride. It's getting dumped into the medullary interstitium, and that's going to raise the osmolality in the medullary interstitium. And what's so cool is that on the descending limb, which is in approximation, it's real close. That's the whole point of the loop. It's this bobby pin. They're really close in approximation. So as you're increasing the concentration of the medullary interstitium, the descending limb is permeable to water. Water is going to flow passively out of that and it's going to concentrate the fluid in the descending limb. And then that concentrated fluid in the descending limb, it's going to turn around, come up the ascending limb, and its concentrated fluid is going to get pumped out. And that's going to further concentrate the medullary interstitium and further concentrate the fluid in the descending limb. And this is the part that's repeated in this countercurrent mechanism is that everything that we do on the ascending limb, pumping solute out, concentrating the medullary interstitium, then has its effect on the descending limb, causing fluid to passively flow out of there, concentrating the solute in the uh, descending limb. I think the, the key piece that I think you're saying, but I want to really call out here, is the impermeability of the ascending limb to water, which really enables all this stuff to happen. That's like the key mechanistic piece. It may not be as tight as a toad bladder, which I think is becoming like my catchphrase for this thing, but those tight junctions in the ascending limb of the loop of Henley are really tight, and they're not even letting water out. And so the way that your osmolality of your fluid in the ascending loop of Henle is decreasing is because of salt being pumped out of that fluid and the same amount of water staying there. No water is coming in, only salt is leaving. And I think that salt leaving process is really the critical process that drives this whole setup of creating the medullary gradient and creating the the increasing osmolarity of the descending limit. Joel, I think you did a nice job of kind of showing how it starts at one end and, and then works over. And then the next time around, it just, it happens again. And then the next time around, it happens again. And that's the whole concept of multiplication, which is different than the countercurrent system. They really both work hand in hand, but it's that multiplying that gets it way up there. One of the things that he does a nice job of pointing out is the length of the limb is super important, is that at any one level, the concentration gradient from the inside to the outside is actually relatively minimal. Uh, in the examples they give, they have a concentration gradient at any one level of the tubule of only 200. But since you stack 
all these layers all the way up. You multiply. You get a situation where you have 100 at the most dilute and you have 1400 at the bottom. You have a gradient of 14 fold, even though you can only get a much smaller gradient laterally. From the, t- from the top to the bottom, a huge gradient, but at any one layer, at any one level of the loop of Henle, you're going to have a, m- a relatively small gradient from the inside to the outside. It's absolutely remarkable that this evolved, that it was critical for us to get out of the ocean too, and to be able to conserve water. It's just amazing to me that something like this could even yeah. and I think, be created. Yeah. Or I was going to say, along those lines, I think that it's so low energy because really the only active portion is the NKCC and the thickest in limb. Otherwise, the creation of the medullary concentration gradient is just everything moving down its own concentration gradient. And having areas that right, some right. were permeable and not permeable. It's genius. How the kidney is able to separate water and the osms is just the key for learners to understand. And it is really the first like segment of nephron that we're seeing water and salt transport separated from each other. Proximal tubule, decently behenly, water is following salt. But here it's really like salt doing its own thing. And we're keeping water behind on purpose. And I just love that the kidney is able to do this. Come on. Yeah, fine. The brain it helps us think. <laughs> but maybe with, not without the kidney. <laughs> That's super well. We still don't understand that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Going along with what Amy said about the, the energy and how the efficiency of the system, I, I, this is something I read at Vander Physiology a while ago that talks about the maintenance of this tonicity gradient. It goes along with the specific characteristic of medullary blood flow respect to cortical blood flow. There's only 6% of renal blood flow that goes into the medulla. And this obviously uh, is uh, linked to the notion that the partial pressure of oxygen is very low. There's not a lot of blood getting there. It's it's 10 millimeters uh, per mercury compared to what we see in the cortex. And and we talk about it when we talk about ischemic ATN and and animal models of tubular injury, how the medulla is so vulnerable because it lives in the verge of hypoxia, etc., etc., but in terms of this chapter, uh, what Vanderman said, if you were to have a high blood flow in the medulla, it would be very, almost impossible to maintain all that high solute concentration. It's almost like it's absolutely necessary to have this extremely slow blood flow distribution in the medulla so that you don't wash out all the solutes and maintain that high tonicity. I thought that's incredible. To just double down on that. So first of all, we designed a system that has this massively high osmolality, but everything, all the tubules that are in this area with the very, very high osmolality have no active transport whatsoever, right? All the active transport is in the cortex where you get plenty of blood flow. We have the sodium potassium 2 chloride and the, and the sodium potassium ATPase. That's all in the cortex, plenty of blood flow. And in this deep medulla, it's all passive, right? And it's essential for it to be passive so you don't require a lot of blood flow. Because you got to remember, the blood coming in is going to have an osmolality of 285. And so it's going to be picking up a solute like crazy and dropping off water. Water is going to get sucked out of that blood like there's no tomorrow. And so all of that is just going to disrupt this concentrated medullary system. So that low, low blood flow is not just a byproduct. It's essential for this whole thing to work. Which is the thing that always gets me about it is how do you maintain it? And so that really helps to think about the way that he phrased it was blood flow in a hairpin configuration minimizes removal of excess interstitial solute, which I thought was really helpful. Yeah, it's, it's a limited blood flow supply and this loop uh, circulation of the vasorecta that kind of maintained a high tonicity. Right. So not only is it not 
a high blood flow, but it's also not just washing through. It's also has the hairpin turn. Right. Also, it's kind of amazing that those red cells don't crenate as they go down into the really, you know, high osmolarity area. And, and that's why the transporters in the kidney and in red blood cells are so intimately linked and so exciting, I think, because as the red cells travel down and are going to lose water, they're going to gain urea. And so that will help those red cells maintain their shape as they go down deep into the loop because they'll have to gain urea. Otherwise, they will all crenate. And then as they come back up, they can shed that urea, if you will, and take back in water. That's a really nice point. Yeah. That's wild. The, the chapter touches on the urea transporter, but again, this is 2001. And I happened to be a fellow at Emory when Jeff Sands was at his prime doing the urea transporter research and Yuha Coco was there still. And he is the one who essentially described a passive reabsorption of urea in the proximal tubule. So I was in a noon conference watching this really intense debates between the urea transporter, Jeff Sands, and the passive urea reabsorption, Yuha Coco. So I had to learn a little bit about urea transporters. And what you're saying, Melanie, is extremely important. The urea transporter that is a UTB that is expressed in erythrocytes is the same that is expressed in the endothelial cells and vasorecta and allows the red cell to cope with the changes in tonicity and not shrink or burst. People with sickle cell trait will sickle as it goes down that medulla. And we always say that if you have sickle disease, you have crisis. But if you have sickle trait, your, your renal medulla is always in crisis. That's why we see hematuria and papillary necrosis and the like, because those cells can't handle what you're saying. I'm not sure exactly what it makes them more likely to sickle, but they clearly don't have normal membrane and lead to that. But that's a very interesting mechanism that, that maintains the red cell because they're really just basically packages of hemoglobin water, but they're a little smarter than that, obviously. Right. Or maybe because the patients with the trait would not normally sickle except for in these very extreme conditions. And then you see it. And then actually physiology in action, because if they have papillary necrosis, then they lose their papillae. So they can't concentrate their urine and develop isosthenuria and are much more prone to fluid losses. And so in fact, the NCAA requires all athletes to be tested for trait, just to make sure that they are aware if they have trait, that they would be more prone to problems with fluid and volume in sports. And, and it, sickle cell is a cause of, of nephrogenic DI. It's one of those acquired causes of NDI late, later in life. So interesting. I was just going to say in the military, because I did my residency in El Paso, Texas, that used to be a big training base for trainees. But because they were finding either family members or soldiers were having sickle trait, they actually moved it. So now like it's usually like infantry basic trainees in lower level areas. So like Fort Bragg and things like that. But it used to be in El Paso, but not anymore. <laughs> because of sickle trait, because of the concern about sickle yeah, trait. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the volume depletion that mm -hmm. they, these patients would be at risk for. Simply, simply because of the, the, the climate there? Exactly. Yeah. It's like three, 500 um, feet above sea level. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Don't give them an extra bottle of water. Let's just move the base. Yeah. Change the name and then move the base. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
So we've been talking a lot about red blood cells in the medulla along with sickle trait, and I wanted to make a few comments. So Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas used to be a site for basic training of army recruits. In 1970, there was a case series by Dr. Binder, who was a military physician, who noted um, sudden death in four black recruits during basic training, and all four of them had sickle trait. Um, And he postulated that the high exertion at a high altitude because El Paso is around 4,100 feet or 1,250 meters above sea level, contributed to their deaths. He postulated that potentially reducing agents such as lactate and NADH may also promote sickling, and that perhaps the the degree of hemoglobin S may be contributing, because about um, one-third of patients with sickle cell trait will have a hemoglobin S of more than 40% of their hemoglobin. It appears in later observations of recruits with sickle trait, he actually found no medical problems during their basic training. And in 1988, another military physician, Dr. Wiseman, she looked at 22 recruits with sickle cell trait compared to 15 recruits with no sickle cell trait who did their basic training at Fort Bliss. Um, And she also looked at markers of exertion, so minute ventilation, heart rate, etc., and found no medical issues in any of these individuals. And all of them had a hemoglobin S contributing to about 35 to 45% of their hemoglobin. However, as Roger mentioned, patients with sickle cell trait can and do experience renal dysfunction, evidenced by hematuria and papillary necrosis. Sickle trait is associated associated with renal medullary uh, carcinoma as well. And in fact, actually, renal medullary carcinoma is almost exclusively present in patients with sickle cell trait. Other renal diseases associated with sickle cell disease, so this is like nephrogenic DI, distal RTA, venal thrombotic events, glomerular diseases, they're not really so much seen with sickle cell trait, but it may just be because it hasn't been studied or looked at very closely. As we mentioned, the inner medulla is quite hypoxic. The partial pressure of oxygen is less than 20 millimeters of mercury and hyperosmolar. And it's really the hypoxia that promotes sickling and that leads to like an ischemia reperfusion type injury and eventual papillary medullary necrosis. Patients present with hematuria, renal dysfunction, impaired concentrating defects that Melanie described. And actually most patients with sickle cell disease by their late teens can only maximally concentrate their urine to 450 milliosms per liter. And the findings in patients with sickle cell trait are not as severe as in patients with sickle cell disease. Recently, there is growing epidemiologic studies looking at the role of sickle cell trait and incident chronic kidney disease and ESRD. The largest combined cohort study in 2014 in GMA looked at 1,247 patients with sickle trait, and they showed patients with sickle trait had an increased odds ratio of incident CKD, EGFR decline, and albuminuria, but there was no difference to ESRD progression, and this was not affected by baseline hypertension, diabetes, or APO1 status. Investigators in 2020, they published in JAMA a cohort of 1,251 patients with sickle cell trait, and they looked so at patients with sickle disease and chronic kidney disease, and they showed that patients with sickle cell trait had an EGFR decline of 0.45 mils per minute per year compared to um, 1.29 mils per minute per year in patients with sickle cell disease. Other studies demonstrate that sickle cell trait is twice as common in African-American populations on dialysis compared to African-American populations not on dialysis, and that the hazard ratio for incident ESRD for patients with sickle cell trait is 2, so quite high compared to non-carriers. The jury's still out as to the mechanism and the degree of renal dysfunction seen in patients with sickle cell trait. I do think it's kind of an interesting area of research, but suffice to say that patients with sickle cell trait can have renal abnormalities.
One of my favorite lines in this chapter was, the exact mechanism of countercurrent multiplication is incompletely understood. So if you're confused, so was Rose. Three references. <laughs> I, I don't know. Who do you reference when you don't know what's going on? I love that. I didn't, I didn't look up those references, but there's three of them. We don't know what's going on here. You're welcome to reference the podcast. That's fine. We moved past it, but I wanted to just point out that on that first figure, he has it as a sort of, I don't know, a diamond wedge or something. And I liked that because we always think of it as sort of a column and two-dimensional, but it's probably true that the way that the loops are present in a sort of array is in kind of like that orientation with, if it was 3D, some kind of wedge if you will. Or a cone, even. A cone. Oh, that's a much better word. Thank you. That's what I meant. Right. And this actually comes into play. He talks about that we have this very, very concentrated medullary system, but the volume of it is tiny, right? He says it's a very small volume. And you can see the advantages of that because it's very energy intense to maintain this very high concentrated gradient. We just don't need much of it. Let's kind of walk through the generation of concentrated urine to see how that goes. So fluid leaving the loop of Henle going past the macula dense has an osmolality of 100. Going through the distal nephron is going to get diluted further down to 50. And then you're going to get to the cortical collecting tubules. And there in the presence of ADH, because we're going to be making concentrated urine, you're going to have insertion of aquaporin two channels into the principal cells there. And that's going to allow this urine osmolality, which is 50 now, to equilibrate with the surrounding fluid, which has an osmolality of 285, normal plasma osmolality. And so you're going to go from 50 to 285. You're really going to get rid of about 80% of the volume at no cost at all, right? Because the osmolality in the plasma is 285. You get that for free. You haven't disrupted any of your concentrated medullary interstitium. You haven't even used the medullary interstitium to go from 50 to 285, get rid of 80% of the water. And then as you descend down the collecting tubule into the medullary collecting tubule, again, those principal cells will have aquaporin 2 inserted into them under the influence of ADH. And early on in the medullary uh, tubule, it is impermeable to urea. And so you're going to get further reabsorption of water as you're going down. That tubule getting closer and closer to the tip where the osmolality is 1,200. And the key here is that you've lost all this water, so the actual volume of water that is reabsorbed is minimal. All the water that gets reabsorbed is going to be disrupting that medullary interstitium, so it's super important to keep that small, and that's the key of reabsorbing fluid in the cortical collecting tubule. And as you do this, as you reabsorb water, the urea concentration in that tubule is going to go up higher and higher. And finally, at the very late stages of the medullary collecting tubule, you have uh, urea transporters. And they th- it says that they're stimulated by ADH. And that's going to cause a lot of reabsorption of urea at the very end. And that's going to contribute to the concentration in the medullary system. That, and Rose says about half of this very high osmolality of 1,200, half of that is brought there by urea. So half of it's going to be sodium chloride that's going to be contributed by the sodium-potassium-2 chloride transporters that we had in the thick ascending limit loop of Henle. And half of it is going to be urea that's going to be contributed here under the influence of ADH, causing the secretion of urea from the tubular fluid into the medullary interstitium and reabsorption of urea. One of the things that he points out that I thought this was the best, I love this, is that this very high concentration, he gets a concentration of 1,200. He goes back to the descending limb 
of the loop of Henle, the thin limb of the loop of Henle. Now we said that this was permeable to water. And that's all we've talked about so far in the thin limb is that all the water is getting reabsorbed as it goes down into the medullary interstitium. But he points out that since half of the concentrated medullary interstitium is going to be urea, and there's relatively little urea in the descending limb of the loop of Henle, right? The urea concentration in the uh, plasma, he, in his example, he says that it's 10. It's a very healthy person with a normal urea of 10. Almost all the osmolality in the descending limb is going to be from sodium and chloride. And it has to equilibrate with the tip of the loop of Henle, which is going to be of an osmolality of 1,200. And to get there, it reabsorbs a lot of water. It's going to get there with only sodium and chloride. And then that sodium chloride in the loop, in the tubular fluid there is going to be way higher than it is in the medullary system. And you'll get passive absorption of sodium and chloride right in the descending limb of the loop of Henle because of the contribution of urea to raise the uh, the total osmolality. Is that a fair explanation of what's going on there? Yes. And the other last piece of that story, Joel, is that there is also some secretion of urea into the tubular lumen through the urea transporter UTA2, which, because you just mentioned how the urea concentration is so high in the interstitium and how low in the tubular lumen, which doesn't happen at the inner medullary collecting duct. So that's why the urea gets reabsorbed by UTA1 and UTA3 and the inner medullary collecting duct and gets recycled, meaning secreted back into the lumen by UTA2 uh, just because the tubular lumen concentration of urea is, is, is much, much lower than it is in the collecting duct. There's two clinical importance of this uh, urea being reabsorbed in the late uh, collecting duct that's turned on by ADH. One is that somebody drinking water chronically and they chronically have a low serum osmolality and chronically having a water diuresis will chronically suppress ADH and they won't be recycling your urea. And therefore, since half of the osmotic gradient in the tip is urea, by having chronic suppression of ADH, then you no longer have the same kind of gradient. And so people that drink a lot of water, chronic water drinkers, will in effect decrease their ability to concentrate their urine because they won't have that ADH-mediated urea transport down there. And the other is that if people don't eat, you know, people that are malnourished will also have it. They don't have the urea pr production to be able to put into their medullary tip as well. So malnourished people can't concentrate their urine maximally. And it kind of looks like a nephrogenic DI, but, you know, we throw nephrogenic DI out there, like it just means you don't respond to ADH, but it, it, there's a lot of things that may make you not respond to ADH. You know, you, you slough off your papilla, it looks like nephrogenic DI, but it's not absence of response to ADH. It's there's no gradient there to respond to. And that can happen from sloughing off your papilla. It can happen from chronically drinking water. And uh, it can happen if you're severely malnourished. I'm so glad you said that, Roger, because I think it's really important to remember that there's really two parts to making concentrated urine. And one is, yes, ADH and the collecting duct, but two is you have to have that concentration gradient in order to get uh, concentrated urine. So two things are needed. And that helps us think about how we would treat patients who either cannot concentrate their urine or have very concentrated urine. Which of those two can we act on? This concept of drinking water that, Roger, you were mentioning that professional athletes or, or somebody going into competition may have the perception that prior to the competition, 
Do you want to be well hydrated and drinking water three days prior to the competition? And by the time you get to the competition, your medulla is washed out because you suppress ADH completely and you're actually more vulnerable to be uh, dehydrated if you start sweating. So it's important. This is a public health recommendation. Guys, don't do that. Don't overhydrate in three days prior to competition. No good. The myth behind hydration. Yet another one that just tells us. Whoa, that could be a special episode. Why we don't like the word. People don't trust their thirst. Got to drink water. Okay. We have hit the countercurrent exchange great. I think we've covered the vasorecta. I think we've covered urea recycling. There were a couple of other elements to the end of this chapter. None of them really landed for me. Anybody want to talk more about cell volume? Was that something that they read about and found interesting? Because it didn't land, like I said, it didn't land for me. Well, it's the same concept that we discuss in brain osmolites when we talk about hyponatremia causing uh, or when we discuss osmotic demyelination syndrome, how water supplies, how the neurons and the astrocytes generate this osmolites. I think this chapter talks about almost the same notion. That it really cells, felt like the same thing. It really it's did. It's the same thing, yeah. Right. So so the idea that these cells would lose volume, that the water would rush out, and the way they compensate for that is these generates these idiogenic osmoles or osmolites and they allow the cell to maintain volume by pumping up the osmolality inside the cell. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, as I said, we discuss it all the time when we talk about CNS and hepatotumia, but if you think about it, the cells that are living down in the medulla, they need to then defend themselves from these changes in the tonicity and environment. So it's an interesting concept. Okay. And then the last thing in here is the TAM horsefall protein. I did want to say just like a, like five minutes on a couple interesting things. Of the 100,000 interesting things that have happened in this arena since this book was written. As long as you mention a cast, I'll, I, I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah, It's acceptable that. if there's a cast. She's like, Just oh, I know. I even got that. Dr. Tan and Dr. Hustle. <laughs> Uh, so I actually wrote a piece for Renal Fellow Network about this, about how cool it was that it was discovered. And then, and I used that Spider-Man gif where it's like Spider-Man and Spider-Man, like looking at each other and realizing it's the same thing. It's just a cool, for me, it's the coolest story. I'm mean, getting to dig through all those old papers where they like hand plot and everything. But anyway, but like, and, and it's totally for people, separate for from people that. people that don't know the story, tell us the story. A long, long time ago, Tam and Horsfall, well, it was in the 50s. So Tam and Horsfall were these two chemists. They didn't care at all about nephrology. It was not like their thing. But they found this protein that cross-linked all these viruses in vitro. And they were like, this is really neat. It inhibits a lot of viruses. The Lee virus was the one that they were looking at. So it agglutinated the Lee virus. And they just published these papers um, saying, hey, here's a protein that's in the urine. It happens to have this potentially immunomodulatory effect. And then nobody really cared. This is just a protein that's in the urine. It's probably just there for like, you know, bulking. I don't know. So then in 1985, um, much more in Decker, had found this protein and isolated it and purified it. And this is 30 years later. There's a lot of different techniques. And they said, hey, this we found this protein that inhibits T-cell proliferation in the urine. It has immunomodulatory effect of its own, kind of the opposite of what you would imagine back from what Tam Horsfall found. And they named it uromodulin because it was high affinity for IL-1. So then a couple years later, somebody else was doing more work with uromodulin and basically said, hey, this has a really similar amino acid composition is that Tam Horsfall protein back in the 50s. I don't know exactly how that happened, but they published a paper, Penica et al., 
published this paper saying, yeah, these are really similar in size and have very similar residues. And so that was like this very cool moment of like, yeah, we've been talking about the same thing for two years and didn't realize it. Even from the beginning, one group said this cross links and inhibits viruses. And another paper says this inhibits T-cell proliferation. So does it help prevent UTIs? Does it help inhibit viruses in the urine? Like what exactly is the function of this protein? Nobody really knows. And so for a long time, it was just kind of this throwaway thing that in med school, it's the most protein in the urine by mass, and there's a lot of it, and we don't really know what it does, some sort of glycocalyx function, I don't know. But actually, there's been a lot of really cool work done, some of it out of Indiana University, where Dr. Ashkar, Tarek Ashkar, has done a lot of work on it. And what I wanted to talk about, because it's important for what we discussed today, was that there is probably some role in calcium homeostasis. In 2013, um, Matthias Wolf published a paper in Kidney International showing that uromodulin upregulates TRPV5 in the distal convoluted tubule. So as you know, that's a calcium channel on the luminal surface in the distal convoluted tubule. And so actually uromodulin upregulates that channel. So then five years later, there was a guy named Olivier de Voust out of Zurich published a paper in Kidney International showing that when you have inactivating mutations of the calcium sensing receptor, urinary excretion of uromodulin decreases. And it seems like this activates the calcium sensing receptor and then increases uromodulin. But wait a minute. It's Let's very interesting. Up. How does this stuff get in the tubule? Mm-hmm. It's not filtered. It's created by the kidney? Secreted. Yeah. So it's so it's synthesized in the epithelial cells of the thickest It's built limb. in the thickest ending limb. That's where we get this Tam Horsfeld. Yes. It's, it's made there. Yes. It's made this there. This is why it's in this chapter. Oh, uh-huh. it makes sense. And do we, do we still think that this is the only protein that the kidney makes that's unique? I don't know. It's the only one I know of, but that right, is almost This nothing. would be the only protein made by the kidney and in the urine that's not in the Exclusively blood. in the kidney. Okay, so it's made in the loop of hen. No, it is blood. It is. You, have, you can detect it in blood. Yeah, it's released into the urine, but there's also some that goes back through the base lateral membrane into the circulation. And that's what makes doing studies on it really difficult because does the serum level actually reflect the amount that's synthesized? And we don't understand how that's controlled yet. But you can detect it in the serum and in the urine. What does it do with the calcium sensing receptor? So it doesn't do anything with the calcium sensing receptor. Calcium sensing receptor inhibits its trafficking to the luminal membrane. So this stuff is synthesized inside the cell. And if you... Trigger and if your, you have high calcium, you don't the calcium the sensing receptor, yes. And so it literally just accumulates inside the epithelial cell um, in the thick ascending limb. So that was the second part that was discovered. Initially, Matthias Wolf's group said, hey, when it's in the urine, uromodulin upregulates activity of TRPV5 and 6, I think to some extent 6, but mostly 5. So it allows more calcium in. And so the picture that it creates is that uromodulus is how activation of the calcium sensing receptor leads your body to hold on to calcium in the urine. So it's not necessarily just a toss away protein, which I think is really neat. So the investigator, he also talked about a uh, role of Tamhorsal protein in regulation of the TRIP-M6, the magnesium channel and the distal convoluted tubule. So all along, we thought it the uromodulin was just a molecule involved in cell adhesion and fighting bugs. And now all of a sudden it appears to have a regulatory uh, role in control of this uh, cation channels, which is fascinating. I'm really happy that this investigator is still 
studying this protein because of my interest in urinary cast. I've done a, a lot of PubMed searching on, on this product, and there's really not much out there. Robert Schreier did some work on this interesting paper showing how uh, this metallic ascending cells secrete monomers of tamtrophil protein and then depending on the solute concentration in the tubular lumen or the urinary pH of the tubular lumen, those monomers could become dimers and can somehow evolve into this matrix of a hyaline cast and how in the context of ATN, the solute concentration and the pH con changes in the lumen and that favors this accumulation of those granular cast that we see in acute tubular injury. There's familial mutations that have been well characterized in terms of stone disease, like heritable stone disease, but I don't think anyone really put together that the reason was that it was involved in calcium homeostasis until these groups. And then, as I was reading about it for today, there's been a new Nature paper about this that is even more relevant to this talk that we just did, because the same group out of Belgium showed that when ROMK is inactive or mutated, the urmodulin accumulates in the thick ascending limb as well. So I how that plays together, I don't know, but calcium sensing receptor and ROMK both seem to have some effect in modulating your modulin. What's the current nomenclature should we use? Euromodulin or Tamhorsfall or both? Most people I think who study it call it Euromodulin. So if you're sophisticated- I got, I got gray hair, so that's what I was I want, I want other people to think I'm smart, right? That's why I'm a nephrologist or, or to begin can, with. You can say Euromodulin so and then refer you know, the disease formerly known as like, <laughs> kind of like Prince- like the artist, like Prince, the disease. Okay. Well, the problem is if you say uromodulin, then you say uromodulin modulates a lot, I mean, it sounds kind of silly. Yeah, and I, <laughs> and then the gene U mod encodes Tam Horsfall protein doesn't really make. We got some, we got some untangling to do. But I think this is still the jury's out, right? Because now they're starting to try and rename or reclassify the disorders, a host of different tubular interstitial genetic disorders, and. What are we calling them? Autosoma dominant tubulo interstitial kidney disease and UMOD abnormalities is one such abnormality and how that would lead you're invoking calcium, but a lot of those patients have hyperuricemia. So how that is connected, I don't really know. And then don't we have to have JC say something about CAS with this and like Vanco? I was just going to say, I love the cast of our podcast. As I, I said a few minutes uh, ago, it's the matrix of a hyaline cast, uh, sort of the anatomical structure in a way of a cast. A granular casts are a times protein, or you should say uromodeling matrix that has a number of other uh, proteins that get embedded into this matrix. And what is exactly there in that granular cast that goes along with it Euromodeling is still not completely known. There is all studies doing immunofluorescence of those casts describe that you you have uh, plasma proteins stuck in those casts, transferrin, immunoglobulins, you name it, all those plasma proteins. But those studies were done in patients that had proteinuria, so that is probably filter protein that gets into the tubal lumen and it gets stuck in those casts. What I am more interested in is in knowing what are the proteins, not necessarily in glomerular uh, disease, but in a acute tubular injury, right? Why are those muddy brown granular casts are so dark brown? 
So that is what we're actually working on in our lab right now. It is so cool. I actually wondered about that. Like, is it just the fact that the cells were hypoxemic for a long time, not perfused? Like, I, I don't know. But that's interesting. All right. I mean, we're at the end. I need to talk about loop diuretics. Oh, yeah. We are not at the end. We are not at the end because Letty told me that her favorite diuretic is loop diuretics. I said, oh, this is a perfect time to talk I about that. I love diuretics. And there's no way. <laughs> like, loop diuretics are the best. But I did go down like this rabbit hole of looking at papers from the 1800s. And the point was to treat this disease of dropsy. Have you guys heard of this dropsy? Yeah. And so this... <laughs> Dropsy. I had not heard of it. And I have to mention that the term, they think the origin is from ancient Greece because my husband is Greek. So he's like always has to say, oh, the origin of the word is in Greek. So the dropsy is just basically this anasarca. And there were all these different things that were tried, including organic mercurials and another, all these other like mercury compounds, basically that were toxic. But what was happening was that because of it was inducing a lot of diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, people were losing volume until they, they found these Southie tubes, basically these tubes made of silver that were literally made people were getting holes in their legs and this is how the uh, fluid was draining and it would continue to drain so these are silver tubes that get put in throughout the legs basically they're poking holes in the legs to drain the fluid to drain the edema this is Crazy. not recommended therapy no. right of course not this okay. was like in the in the you know 1800s so i'm just saying that people were looking for treatments for edema because this is how they were being treated and so then, ever since that first antibiotic for syphilis was discovered, right? So uh, a sulfa base. It's like, so from this the sulfa antibiotic, then they started deriving other things. And I have to give it to the carbonic anhydrous inhibitors that were in the 1937. This is where the fir- when the first diuretic was invented, derived from the, the sulfa. And then it was not until much later, actually, the first loop diuretic to be created was ethacrinic acid, but it didn't make it onto the market. It didn't get FDA approval until after furosemide. And so furosemide was introduced first. This was like the big breakthrough paper. New diuretic called furosemide. Oh, that's awesome. And it's comparison with hydrochlorothiazide and mercaptomarin. That's some of these mercurials that they were using. Again, toxic, like metals that people were using as medications. And so it goes through a clinical trial was carried out with an, with the object of comparing the effects of furosemide, a new oral diuretic. I just think it's so cool the way that they were so excited about furosemide because at this point it was new because they hadn't felt that thiazide diuretics were, were that potent. And treating dropsy. But one thing that I found interesting was how loop diuretics get to the thick ascending limb. And maybe you guys know this, but basically, so you take the medications in the circulation, and then it gets, actually gets pumped into the proximal tubule through the oat, the transporters, and then that's how it gets to the thick ascending limb. And the other thing that I thought was interesting was that it not only does Lasix work at the NK2 chloride uh, um, co-transporter, but also in the same in sodium potassium to chloride uh, channels in the macula densa. So it has a lot of mechanisms. It also activates prostaglandins, which helps with the vasodilation to the kidney to maintain renal blood flow. Then they want, went into the antihypertensive properties of furosemide. And this one was uh, from, I think, 1967. Yes. And, but one thing that I thought was interesting about this paper was that it actually um, was talking about the dosages. If you look at the dosages that they were using, 120 milligrams, and this is IV. 
And so how we got down to the smaller doses, sometimes people were like, oh, let's start with 10 milligrams is beyond me. I love how they uh, diagnose hypertension here by ophthalmoscopic examination of arterial venous yes. nicking in 104 patients. Ah, the good old days. Guys, <laughs> I'm going to post the link where I found all these old articles. It's like the history of nephrology. It's really cool to see a lot of this. Before, it was thought wrong to treat hypertension because it was thought that you're treating a, a mechanism that was necessary to compensate for something, right? If you do a PubMed search of how many papers have the uh, uh, furosemide in the title, there's over 17,000 papers. So yes, not as cool, not as many fun little facts about it, Other, but this is just how much... So you only, you only reviewed 12,000, Letty? I only Come went on. from 1970 before. Those are the only ones that I reviewed. <laughs> And there's actually PubMed has a really cool graph of the number of articles uh, per year. Yeah. And of course, the 1964 was the first one. And then they slowly went up like in the 80s, 90s peaked and then it went down. So that means when we get to chapter 15, there'll still be something to talk about. I, there will still be something to talk about. Let me finish. By then there'll be like 100, 200 new papers, right? At the rate you're going. And then they talk a lot about Richard Bright, who is like they considered, you know, the father of nephrology and how much, how he really worked on trying to find what was causing this dropsy. And he was doing mostly postmortem studies on patients who he knew died of uh, renal failure. And he was the first to describe that a lot of them had low serum albumin. And so he's like, there must be a connection with this. They're losing it through the kidney. All right, Letty. So since you're a looped erotic lover, you have a patient, it's uh, ATN in the ICU, 320 per over the last 24 hours. Nothing else going on. No uremia, no electra, no acid base, but you're worried about volume. They're putting pressure to dialyze this patient. Uh, your only problem is volume and risk for catheter and bleeding is high. So you're probably going to try to hit this patient with Lasix, right? All right, oh, what's yeah. your dose? 240. <laughs> oh, I love now, it. <laughs> I have the evidence. I have the evidence from this paper. I'm going to quote the page, the, the paper from 1967. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Only if you can demonstrate the nicking. Got to bring your ophthalmist. I told the residents that the other day, and they were freaking out. They were like, 240? I was like, I'm a nephrologist. I don't care. <laughs> Just give it. We had a recent discussion in communities about the use of diuretics in ESRD, and it's not uncommon in Europe to use 800,000 milligrams, you know. I think, uh, yeah, JC, you saw that too. Basically, as a volume. Yeah, it was 500. Yeah, I mean, huge, huge doses. Crazy. And as long as it's oral, not IV push, you don't really see the deafness. Letty, you mentioned the fact that it's secreted at the proximal tubule and floats downstream. The key there is it has to be protein-bound to be secreted. And so patients that are hypoalbuminemic, that's one of the causes of diuretic resistance is hypoalbuminemia. And we all quote that that paper where they actually took the Lasix and injected it into albumin and shook it up and then gave it to the patient and they responded better. And it's unclear if that's just urban legend or whatever, but clearly uh, th there is some resistance that you will see if it doesn't get there. It has to float, it has to float downstream. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. 90% protein bound. That's exactly right. I, I, I like using albumin, is, you know, and not just in cirrhotics, which I know that JC will also condone. <laughs> but I just think that people are so afraid of diuretics. Like, where does it 
it come from? Like, seriously, for, for my students, none of them will be afraid to give really high doses of like this. I like, I really drive this point home. These medications are not going to cause you to get another AKI. Unless you tell me they made eight liters of urine or something. I really try to drive this point home, but it's just such an urban legend. Well, one of the things that I always point out is that if you give them an overdose, the antidote is close at hand. It's right next to you. Yeah, we're all familiar with IV fluids. Like if you give them too much, we can reverse it. We got the antidote to this. Don't worry about it. I was challenged about this the other night on call and it was unfortunately very early in the morning and, and I got called by the ED for, for hyperkalemia and ESRD patient and they said, oh, he's got EKG changes, da, 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 it's really bad. But I said, we'll give him, you know, some Lasix does EP and they said, well, he makes some urine sometimes. I said, we'll give him like 120 Lasix and by the time I get there, maybe, you know, we'll see. And, and the pharmacist called me twice and said, the risk is so high. And I said, you're telling me he's got AKG changes. I said, ototoxicity. Yeah, the ototoxicity is like, is like multiple grams of Lasix, like thousands yeah. of milligrams. And I, that's what I told him. Well, I'll ask him if he'd rather be deaf or dead from an arrhythmia, but I think he'd probably rather be deaf. Like, I, well, that's I just, not a very, that's a, you can't do that. Can't, no, on. I didn't. I, 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 Chances are you've been asked before about the dose of loop diuretic you've prescribed and whether it might be putting your patient at risk for ototoxicity. Loop diuretics cause problems with the epithelium of the stria vascularis. That's the part of the cochlear duct that forms endolymph. Is this coming back to you? Endolymph is supposed to have more potassium than sodium, like the inside of a cell, and it's dependent on that property to properly conduct action potentials or sound. Loop diuretics inhibit the isoform of NKCC2 that's in the striovascularis, and the resulting sodium-rich endolymph does not conduct sound properly. There's also newer research that shows loop diuretics might decrease blood flow supplying the cochlear duct, and that this causes local ischemic effects, kind of like an ATN in your ear. But when should we be worried? Right after Lasix was approved, 29 cases of hearing loss were reported to the FDA. Most of these were in intravenous dosing, and most were in quite high doses, Anywhere from 200 milligrams to 21,600 milligrams. Yes, that's 21 grams of IV Lasix per day. In most cases, hearing did recover, but in the cases where hearing didn't recover, doses were well over one gram daily. The risk is also higher in patients with CKD or in patients who are receiving aminoglycosides concurrently. There's also been reports of deafness in patients with AKI who've received anywhere from two to four grams daily. There's also a lower risk with intravenous drips rather than bolus dosing, and that's because the serum concentrations reach much lower peaks with IV drips than they do with bolus dosing. So while you might hear about ototoxicity associated with loop diuretics all the time, in reality it happens very rarely, and usually only with intravenous doses that were much higher than you were probably planning to use. Irritates me is reading a loop diuretic and a list of nephrotoxins. You know, that's yes. just really so. It's a, yes. a loop diuretic or diuretics are not nephrotoxic. Iatrogenic volume depletion could be. So, you know, if you use it when you shouldn't be using it or you overuse it, of course, it's going to cause problems. Uh, but because of the negative fluid balance. I really drive this point home. Like I said, Lasix is your best friend. Look, you're going to treat the potassium. You're going to treat um, the hyponatremia, even your acidosis. Like, what more do you want? Yeah, I think also it's so interesting when in in our hospital, often when patients are started on a furosemide infusion, the house staff also order BID labs. 
And the thing is, the potassium is not going to plummet precariously if there's no urine output. So I don't know why they do that. And I'm trying to work on that. I think, Letty, also, you said something really important. I liked how you went through how is handled by the kidney because it's if it works and and this has been championed with the LASIK stress test, if you will, if it works, that means so many things are working because it has to be it has to go through the glom and then get secreted by organic anion transporters and then arrive at the tubule and then it has to work and then there has to be flow and so if all those things are working, then actually the renal failure may be less bad than you thought or perhaps poised for recovery, if you will. In a recent episode of Freely Filtered, we had Jay Coiner, the nephrologist probably most associated with the ferrosamide stress test, describe the ferrosamide stress test and what it is useful for. I thought I'd put that clip right here. What is this ferrosamide stress test and how should we be doing it? Where is it appropriate and how is it used? Right. So the ferrosamide stress test is uh, the idea that if you give a patient who has early AKI, so stage one or stage two, a protocolized dose of uh, loop diuretic, we used one mg per kg or 1.5 mg per kg of ferrosamide IV for people who were a loop diuretic naive or 1.5 and those who received loops before and you give it to them and then you look at their urine output over the next two hours to see whether or not they respond to it recognizing that ferrosamide and the response to it requires an intact proximal tubule loop distal tubule and collecting duct to be working and we demonstrated that if you make 200 cc's of urine in the first two hours you're probably not going to progress to stage three probably not going to need dialysis down the road we did that in a retrospective cohort a prospective cohort and then in a multi-center prospective cohort where and others have done it as well demonstrating Somewhere between 150 and 250 cc's in two hours is a pretty good cutoff for a kidney that is going to skirt by and not require dialysis or not going uh, to progress. There are folks who have uh, used it in other settings. Like I was saying, Natasha Saraswat and a group in Thailand used it in folks who had stage 3 AKI as a trigger to start dialysis. And they demonstrated that if you don't make 200 cc's, you do go on. Even if you were in a, or they did an early versus late trial and the folks who didn't make urine um, and were in the late arm, still wound up needing dialysis, about 80 to 90% of them. And then there are, apropos of what we were talking about before, Peter Pickers has demonstrated in folks on CRRT that on when you choose to stop at whatever that random time is, if you give them a protocolized dose of furosemide, you can predict who's going to recover or not going to recover. Pickers did that in retrospective data rather than doing it prospectively, but I know that there are other folks looking at it, and we've looked at it in a bunch of other settings as well. A great example is, for years, transplant surgeons have been doing that as they hook up a kidney, and they will give people protocolized doses of furosemide, and it's been shown to predict a delayed graft function or or good function, depending on how much urine you make, right? it's all about the nephron, right? And that how loop diuretics use the nephron, and that if your nephron is on, intact, you're going to make urine. If it's not, you're not, and then you know that you're going to be in trouble. It's all about the nephron. I've got a question for the group, getting back to this secretion and being protein-bound, which I don't know the answer to. But uh, so it gets, it does get secreted. But if you've got protein in your filtrate because you've got nephrotic syndrome, does that let that furosemide then, I'm sure it gets bound to the intraluminal albumin. Is that Lasix that's bound? So not going to block your receptors? Anybody well. know? 
There's this really nice article on causes of diuretic resistance. It's in heart failure, but it really is about nephrotic syndrome and cirrhosis and other problems as well. And it's published in NEJM maybe two or three years ago. Dave Ellison, the primary author on it, talks about different mechanisms of resistance. And one is stuff that competes with Lasix or, or other loop diuretics through the organic anion So in folks who have significant liver failure, high levels of bilirubin, other circulating anions, those will compete with Lasix and prevent it from getting secreted in. Mm-hmm. Renal fa- failure as well. Renal failure, sulfates and phosphates. And so those will reduce the level of furosemide delivered into the tubule. And then if you have nephrotic syndrome, you have the diuretic itself is bound to albumin in the tubule, which prevents it from actually finding its receptor as effectively. And then the other thing I think people often forget is that the frequency of dosing to overcome the breaking effect, which I, I will probably get to in another version in the future, but that these medicines really have to be dosed twice a day or more frequently to overcome the compensatory fluid reabsorption you get in the rest of the day. Really, if you're shooting for three times a day, four times a day, or a continuous drip to win, to get net flute salt and water loss in the patient as opposed to just maintaining ground. And the other important concept about dosing of uh, loop diuretics is that we always, what do we do? We look at a creatinine, we look at a GFR to try to get an idea of how much are we going to give. Uh, so that has somehow translated with, to the misunderstanding that that you know is all about how much is filtered, uh, and it's not really the GFR. But what happens is there are two things. Number one, what Roger said that when you have decreased GFR, that is accompanied by accumulation of sulfates and other anions that are going to compete with the transporters. And the other thing that's going to happen, particularly in ATN, is that the abundance of those working transporters is not the same. You have less transporters. They have to work with more stuff that just has to go across the proximal tubule to get to the lumen and go down to the loop of Henle. So that's why you need to hit him hard with a high dose. So it goes along with low GFR, but it's not right, not really the GFR what is leading to that. No, you've got a GFR of 10 mLs a minute. You're still filtering 14 liters a day. There's plenty of filtrate that you ought to be able to pour some of that out. It's not the GFR. It's getting, it's getting it there and having something blocked. So this discussion of loop diuretics is just the first of many discussions that we're going to be having about loop diuretics. We're going to keep coming back to these central therapeutics. So don't think about this as the definitive discussion. Think about this as the first discussion. That said, there's a couple of points that I want to make. So one of them is about albumin. One of the important things about Lasix being highly protein-bound is that it's trapped in the vascular compartment. That reduces its volume of distribution. So relatively modest doses go a long way. However, that may not occur in patients with low albumin. And so one of the concerns in people that are hypoalbuminemic is that they may they do not get as much of a response to furosemide. This is largely because there's just not enough albumin to bind it, resulting in an unusually high volume of distribution, and we're just underdosing those patients. And the compensation for like ineffectiveness for furosemide is like a lot of our compensations. You need to increase the dose in response to a low albumin. And this has also led people to like using albumin with furosemide, and lots of physicians like to do that. And so I want to make it clear that 
the use of albumin to enhance the effectiveness of furosemide. Initially, there was a lot of enthusiasm. There was a positive clinical trial, but subsequent work done with better clinical trials have not shown a consistent effect, and the meta-analysis on this topic is negative. And KDGO doesn't suggest this as a strategy. But the important thing is that that data is of relatively low quality and really is limited to people with albumins greater than two. So if the albumin is less than two, we're really in a data-free zone and there's reason to think that it would be effective. And so your mileage may vary. The other concern, what about patients with nephrotic syndrome? Normally, the filtrate is protein-free and that having protein in the urine or in the tubular fluid could bind up the furosemide or the loop diuretic. All these diuretics are protein-bound and decrease their effectiveness. Is there an experiment to see if this works? And there is a compound called sulfasoxazole. Sulfasoxazole displaces furosemide from albumin. And when this was done in animal studies with animal models of nephrotic syndrome, co-administering furosemide with sulfasoxazole dramatically increased the effectiveness of furosemide, indicating that that protein binding inside the tubular fluid was clinically important. However, when this study was done with humans, there wasn't an improvement in uh, urinary output uh, with co-administration with sulfamethoxazole. So even though there's good animal data, human data was negative. And so we do not think that binding of furosemide to protein in the tubular fluid is an important contributor to the decreased effectiveness of furosemide in the presence of nephrotic syndrome. It's probably more likely due to the extreme sodium avidity in those situations or the hypoalbuminuria increasing the volume of distribution. He talks about in this chapter getting up to 1,400 um, miliosm gradient. I've never seen anything above 1,200, and most books I've read about is 1,200 and not 1,400. And maybe it's a moot point, but uh, has anybody seen a urine osmolarity greater than 1,200? I don't see it ever get to 1,000 in patients. I mean, getting to 800 is pretty remarkable. In the and it's probably a moot point. It's more concentrated. But the point I want to make is that Joel said what an amazing thing it is to, to get to this level, and it really is quite incredible. But as organisms go, we're pretty we're pretty meager concentrators because they're, depending on how long your loops are, you can really rev this up two or three times more. And I don't know, one of the, one of the, the strongest concentrators is a desert rat who has access to almost no water. And I think can get urinary osmolarity in, in the few thousand range. And, and, and basically they do that because their loops go, their medulla is much deeper and their loops go much longer. And it just, it's just an exaggeration of what we've been talking about. So it is incredible, but we're average concentrators because we've always have access to water. And, but the rats who, who live in the desert, they have a drop a day from, they do from in the morning or something. And they, they really don't have access to much fluids. I just wanted to stress what this whole loop concentration thing is about. It's there so that we can survive with different water intakes. So if we don't have enough water, two things happen. We get thirsty and we drink more water. And we could probably survive on that if we always had access to water and weren't able to concentrate. We would just be really thirsty and drink a lot of water. But we don't have to do that. We can concentrate our urine and save some of the water that we filter. So it's a combination of thirst and the fact that we can concentrate and dilute, which means if we happen to overdrink water, which is really important, we can get away with it. And the combination of an intact thirst mechanism, a concentration, ability to concentrate the urine, and the ability to dilute the urine allows us to handle 
any water availability and, and climate situation as long as we have access to water and, and an intact thirst, thirst mechanism. It's really quite remarkable. That's the whole purpose of the Loop of Henley. I was just thinking of Bear Grylls as you were talking about this and drinking your own urine. <laughs> the first time through, the urine's not so bad. It's the second <laughs> or third time through that it starts to get awfully concentrated. No, there's not much water left Not a lot there. of water left there. I don't know if it was like um, on, on Twitter and now I'm forgetting who. It was like, oh, let's review how uh, George Washington died. And they went through all the... The amount um, of bloodletting he had done. Yes. Good Lord. Yes. You, know who, you know who his physician was? Benjamin I don't Rush. Remember. Benjamin Rush. My institution. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Rush Medical Center named after Benjamin Rush. The, 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 the doctor oh, that cool. killed the father of our country. Yeah. <laughs> it was like Aww. three liters of bloodletting because it was the only thing they could do. Why did he have bloodletting like, then? To get like rid of the. For what? For what? Yeah, he had, had like blood in the rain. Yeah, he had a pneumonia. Like I strep throat or something. Strep throat. Maybe like three he liters of bloodletting. Certainly, certainly the desert rat cannot tolerate the beauty <laughs> Okay. Okay, guys. Uh, next month. Okay, we're well, stop it.